Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, country music superstar, Toby Keith. Danny Boy. Toby. How you doing, old man? Let me see you again. Been too long. Have a seat, old I will. How you been? It's been 10 years. I was just thinking it's been 10 or 12 years. It's gone by too fast. It does, don't it? That's us. That's right. Toby Keith is one of the most recognizable names in country music. Funny how the world keeps turning. Best known for his beloved drinking song. Red Solo Cup. I fill you up. Let's have a party. And patriotic anthem. Toby Keith has appeared before three U.S. presidents, both Republican and Democrat. And he's performed over 200 concerts for the troops fighting overseas. A proud Okie, Toby Keith Covell was born and raised in Oklahoma along with his sister and brother. His father was a military veteran and an oil field worker. His mother was a singer who put her career on hold after she had Toby. Toby Keith first picked up the guitar at age eight and grew up listening to music at a club run by his grandmother. Keith was practically a teenager when he met Trisha Lucas, now his wife of over 30 years. The two married back in 1984, and they raised a family while Toby Keith struggled to make a living as a musician. It took nearly a decade for Toby Keith to finally break through. But in 1993, should have been a cowboy, shot straight to number one, and later became the most played country song of the decade. I should have been a cowboy. I should have learned to rope and ride. Wearing my six shoes, riding my pony on a cat and drive. And he's had a string of hits since, including one that record executives originally turned down. To get your attention, but you overlook me somehow. Toby Keith released the song anyway, and how Do You Like Me Now? Spent five weeks at number one. How do you like me now? How do you like me now? Now that I'm on my way. Toby Keith has recorded nearly two dozen albums and scored an astonishing 32 number one hits. Now he is back on tour 
celebrating the 25th anniversary of Should Have Been a Cowboy. I caught up with Toby Keith at one tour stop in Murphy's, California, at the Ironstone Amphitheater, where I had the pleasure of introducing him on stage. Next up is the one and only, the great Toby Keith. Tell me where we are and what you're doing here. I'm celebrating the 25th anniversary of my first single that I wrote, Should Have Been a Cowboy, and it snuck up on me. I didn't even know it was 20 years old, and they told me this year it was 25 years old, and it was the song that set the foundation that allowed me to have this type of career. And that was what year? 93. Right. Well, that's what vaulted you. But it's one thing to get to the top. It's another thing to stay at the top as long as you have. Mm -hmm. And not just as a singer, performer, songwriter, but businessman, entrepreneur, ultimate survivor. What is the key to your having done that? What's inside you that made you do that? Uh, work ethic. My, my dad, I'm from Oklahoma. You've been to my ranch. Yeah. And uh, there's the work ethic that was put in. It was like they might outride us, they might outsing us, and they might outplay us, and they might outsell us, but they can't outwork us. And if you work every day of your life, you'll get luckier and you'll be more productive. And I just, um, I just put my nose to grindstone and and had a lot of luck and a great fan base, and and I'm here. You've reached the top. You've been at the top for a long while, but you're still working hard, pushing, fighting, <laughs> trying. Why do it at this age? Well, I'm, I'm 56, but I only work about June to Halloween. And then I don't do jack from Halloween till, <laughs> till June. But I, I like being around my band. I like being around the crew. I have very little turnover. I'm really loyal to my people. My people are loyal to me. And they want to get out here. They enjoy the performance. They enjoy the audience. And as long as it's out here, you want to come out here and do this. It's fun. It's like a big party for us. And literally, I could do it year round. I just have other things now that interest me. And I want to live life a little bit outside of what I do just to see what it's like because I was on the grindstone so long. And uh, so it, after about 15 years, you know, my family finally went, hey, are we ever going to go to Disney World? <laughs> and I was like, I, if they'll pay me to play there, you know, I need a gig. But I really did work at our Dan. You mentioned before, should have been a cowboy is what broke you through. That was your breakover. How and why did you write it? How did that come about? Um, I had just got, uh, I was trying to get a record deal, and I'd just been turned down by Capitol in Nashville. Very, very famous Rat Pack producer, the guy who produced the Rat Pack, Jimmy Bowen had just turned me down and said, his company had Capital and Nashville had said, um, you're, you, we've already got um, Garth Brooks and we're not looking for a male artist and your songwriting, you need to go back to Woodshed. And I had just written that song in 20 minutes about two months before on the side of a bathtub in Dodge City, Kansas. I went pheasant hunting was about 20 Guys, one of them was a highway patrolman, and and we went into this Western saloon, and 
this dude was about my age now, and he was in hunting clothes, and this young girl standing at the bar, he gets up from his stake, and he said, I think I'm gonna go dance with her. And they're like, John, she ain't gonna dance with you. You're in hunting clothes, and you stink. You've been in the field all day. No, watch this. She turns him down. A little bit later, a young guy comes in, and she's right on the floor, and somebody goes, John, you should have been a cowboy. <laughs> and I went, ding, 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 ding. I was like, oh, I got that. So we were staying in this little motel, and we're staying two to a room, somebody leased the room. And I went in, and my guy that was uh, staying in my room went to bed, and I didn't want to wake him. But I'd brought a guitar, and so I grab it, go in the bathroom, sit on the side of that little shower bathtub combo, and in 20 minutes I wrote it. 20 minutes to glory. 20 minutes. I should have been a cowboy. I should have learned to rope and ride. Wearing my six shooter, riding my pony on a cattle drive. Stealing a young girl's hearts. I promised myself I'd raise this, which I didn't in our previous interviews. Okay. That you and I share some things. Uh, that I'm the son of an oil field worker yeah. and the grandson of an oil field worker. When you work in the oil fields, what did you pick up there? I mean, explain, there's a special atmosphere, a whole special ethos in the oil field. And we're talking to a lot of people who wouldn't know a roughneck right. from a roustabout. Well, today, today the oil field is like a video game. When the oil field when I broke out in and when my dad and my grandfather came out, it was just hard work. And both my grandfather and my father were, were both veterans. But when, when I came along in the 70s, there was no draft. So I went in the oil field and the oil field was the closest thing to learning to respect people, to be disciplined, and to grow up. It made a man out of me. Well, and part of the oil field ethic is you work. You work. You, you hurt, you work. Yeah. I don't know how it was in Oklahoma, but in Texas it was. If you don't have a temperature or fever of more than 105, you come to work. No, they do. And it's 24-7 a lot of time. Yeah. Service companies like we were in were 24-7, and you go out three days, you come back, and you sleep when they're filling the mud. They'll take and fill casing with mud, and that's your 30-minute nap, and you just go. And at 18 years old, it made me a man. So singing and writing songs was like flipping pancakes. You know what I mean? It was on. And uh, so it was nothing for me to go work. Well, Toby, I want you to think back. I have so much ground I want to cover. You will never get to it all. Get, it, get as much as you want. I'm here. What was the low point for you? A after, after you're a man, after age 18, what, what's, what has been the lowest point in your life? Uh, my father was 35 years uh, in the oil field and the boom had a big crash in about 82. And he said, you know what, I'm gonna retire. If you wanna stay in it and ride it out, there'll be another boom. Maybe, but uh, if you don't, but I'm gonna retire. I'm not going, I've been through too many booms and busts. And he left and I was pretty lonesome. Uh, I was pretty lost because I dedicated my mature part of my life, which I'm only 22, 23 years old, to making sure that my future was secure and I'm gonna go through my first bust. And I had that band and I just 
sat down one night and said, you know what, I'm gonna gravitate toward the, the one thing that I do best and give that a run. And it was, it was music. Huh? You and I both know that the road is littered with the carcasses of marriages that didn't make it. Right. When a celebrity breaks through and manages mm -hmm. to stay at the top. How have you done it? It wasn't up to me. It was uh, strictly up to her. She just was strong. She's been out here on the road with us uh, for the last four or five years now. She used to come when she could. She raised great babies, and um, we had a wonderful, uh, we got wonderful children. They're all three. My son's a, uh, getting ready to be a senior in college. He's the, he's the baby, so he's the last of the, he's the last of my tribe. And uh, she enjoys, she enjoys uh, coming and hanging out. I've got some really close friends of mine that are uh, singers. S some of my favorite nights are like when uh, me and Sammy Hagar and a couple more and their wives are all out. We're all jamming, having fun in Mexico and everybody's standing around your family and everybody's partying. You can't get that perfect thing to work unless everybody's sold in from the start. You know, there's gonna be highs and lows, but at the end of the day, uh, you're either supposed to be together or you're not. But along the way, you must have been tempted, and I'm asking you to be as candid as you can. Sure. Drugs, whiskey, women have wrecked more careers and almost anything else in, in your business and in mine for yeah. that matter. Whiskey's great, by the way. Whiskey's great. I wouldn't know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, as a kid, you, you come up and you look at all that, and I think you just work too hard at the end of the day. I think your, your work overcomes everything, and after you're done, you just look back on the whole picture and and everybody takes pluses and minuses off, and and then you get assessed with what you got left. You like whiskey, so do I. But the record doesn't show that you've ever had a deep, really threatening problem with it. My question is, no. have you? I've never had that gene or that illness to where, now I can hang with anybody, but the next day, um, I don't have to have it, fortunately, but I, I know other people probably do, but I've just never had that. Well, I was going to ask you, your grandmother ran a bar, did she? Yes, my grandmother owned a supper club, old school supper club, where they had horns and, and a tavern in the front, and at night they would charge cover charge to go in the back, and the people in the front would be in overalls and cowboy hats and trucker caps, and then at night when they roll in the back, guy, people would show up in a jacket with a tie, and they would do everything the band would play, uh, everything from In the Mood to Bad Bad Leroy Brown to Crazy by Patsy Cline, and they would play big band dance music all night, and she was the number one um, nightclub in Fort Smith, Arkansas. When we come back, Dan Rather's a movie star and Toby Keith gives beer to horses? Yeah, stay with us on Dan Rather's Big Interview. Welcome back to Dan Rather's Big Interview with Toby Keith. Let's find out what this beer and horses thing is all about. Now, hold your hand way high in the air and repeat after me. 
Say whiskey for my men and beer for my horses. Beer for My Horses is one of Toby Keith's best-known songs. It's a duet featuring country music legend Willie Nelson. In 2008, Keith co-wrote, produced, and starred in a movie by the same name. Beer for My Horses. Unusual uh, title, to say the mm -hmm. least. You were actually in the movie Beer for My Horses. Uh, for your listeners or your viewers, uh, me and Willie and Rodney Carrington and David Allen Coe and uh, uh, got a lot of people's in that movie. Claire Filani. Uh, it was a bunch of movies. Anyway, we shot this movie and they said we need an, uh, we need somebody to do the TV announcement at the end in the bar. And I said, call Dan Rather and you did it. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> I go, we can't get Dan Rather to do that. I go, call him. That's why I got Burt Reynolds to do the first movie I was in. I said, call him. And he said, yeah, but I thank you for doing that. It was, I, oh, it was my nice pleasure. To have you. Anyway, I worked for a rodeo company in high school, and there was a real old elderly gentleman that bedded the stock down at night. And we were kids, 12, 13, 15 years old, and he kept a pint of Old Crow whiskey in his back pocket. And every night when we'd get the stock bedded down, he would say, you boys want to drink off my bottle? And sometimes we would, sometimes we would, because we really didn't want to drink after him, you know. Especially Chewing, Old Crow. Yeah, and, oh, especially <laughs> Old Crow. He had any teeth, and, and, uh, and he had to back all over. And that whiskey, and we're like, uh, so he would hold it up and go, turn out the lights, you know. Uh, whiskey from my man bearing my horses. So I just put that in my back pocket and saved it. I thought it was comical. I thought it was profound. And it was like a million other songs we started to write that just turned out to where I said, it's so old west that I want Willie Nelson to sing part of it. And I took it to him and he said, send it to me. And I said, okay. He goes, what's the name of it? And I said, it's called Beer for My Horses. It's whiskey for my men beer from my horses, and he said, I don't even need to hear it, I'm in. <laughs> and that's six week number one. Well, the song did very well. The movie, probably because of my brief appearance, <laughs> did not do so well. Yeah, well, there's a lot of reasons for people to hate on that movie, but it's hilarious. <laughs> the movie's funny, and Rodney Carrington's funny, and me and Rodney wrote it, and so to go out and be a songwriter from Oklahoma, oil field worker, and decide you're gonna write a whole movie, and get all the people involved that we got, Tom Skerritt, everybody involved, we got involved, and do the movie and finish it, it was a complete joy. And at the end of the day, me and Rodney had a blast, and the people that have watched it, that are fans of mine, said they loved it, and they laughed, and we had a great time doing it, and I wouldn't take it back for nothing. Even if it didn't win an Oscar? Yeah. Or my recollection, it may not even got nominated. Did it not get nominated, Dan? <laughs> I'll be damned. <laughs> See, I thought we were going to Hollywood. <laughs> weed with Willie, as yeah. in Willie Nelson. Yeah, yeah. As in smoking weed with Willie. Yeah. How'd that come about? Uh, weed's never been my high. Uh, I can't handle my high when I do weed. I'm not very much fun. I'd rather drink. But um, I was at the old Hacienda in Vegas, and Charles Barkley had a 
birthday party at the Rum Jungle at midnight. Eight o'clock, Willie's at the Hacienda. So I said, I'm gonna go by at eight, see Willie. Plenty of time, get over to Charles, and I ain't gotta work till tomorrow night. So I get on stage, do a couple songs with Willie, shake his hand, hug him, wave at his audience, and do, maybe we did beer for my horses. I don't remember, but anyway, we did a couple songs. He goes, don't leave, don't leave yet. I'm gonna talk to you. So I thought, okay. So I go to his bus and he fires a joint up. And he says, uh, here we go. I said, you got some whiskey? Yep. I said, okay. And I thought, you know what? If I'm gonna smoke, smoke weed, it's gonna be with him. Went in Rome and I'm absolutely wanna be able to tell my friends and my family and my people that I smoked a joint Willie Nelson. And smoking weed on Willie's bus is almost obligatory. Yeah, and also it's like really chronic. It's like toxic, industrial strength. So I tried to do the old fake it a little bit and then finally I went, you know what, let's go. And about an hour later, I was just zombied. And I felt the bus rolling and I got up and I said, uh, Willie, the bus is rolling. He goes, you going with us? I go, no. <laughs> I got a show tomorrow. I got a roll. He goes, a oh, good time. Get off. You know, I'll see you next time. So I get off and I missed Charles Barkley's birthday and I went home, went to my room and I crashed out and I woke up next morning. I had all these text messages and emails. Where'd you go last night? Barkley was mad. Everybody, what'd you do? And I said, I'll never smoke weed with Willie again. And even though that isn't true, um, I, I wrote a great song from it. So the song resulted from uh, too powerful of weed on Willie's bus. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And maybe the people that smoke every day, maybe they can handle it like he does. Because he's, he's just like drinking water. He can just go all day. But if you're out of smoking shape and you don't do it, you know, if that ain't your high, it'll sneak up on you. And, and I turn into the, what is it, walking dead? <laughs> well, don't knock it till you tried it. I've tried it, my friend. I'll never smoke weed with Willie again. Now you could pour me some old whiskey river, my friend. But I'll never smoke weed with Willie again. In the wake of September 11th, and just a few months after his father, an Army veteran, was killed in a car crash, Toby Keith wrote one of his most popular and polarizing songs. You'll be sorry that you mess with the U.S. of A. Cause we'll put a boot in your ass, it's the American way. Originally titled, The Angry American, the song's lyrics struck a nerve and turned Toby Keith into a lightning rod. What do you consider the biggest misconception about you as a person? Well, when I was a kid, um, you know, I come out in 93, so about 98, 99, I start having a little success. And I grew up watching John Wayne on the 4th of July talk about the flag. I started watching, I grew up watching veterans knock on our doors talking to us about donating money to the veterans. I had a one-eyed dad that lost his eye during the Korean War. And so you grow up on a farmhouse like that and you're out here on your own and you're virtually a kid when it comes to the way the media operate. 
and from a long line of Democrats, right? And I, he goes, Dad goes, go on the USO tour. We used to see Bob Hope and all those guys come over there. All the, you ought to do that. And I was like, Dad, I'm too busy. So about the time he passes away, I write a song, or military's shipping off, and I write courtesy Red, White, and Blue thinking, Charlie Daniels did it, John Wayne did it, Patriots love this, and it blows up in my face. And all of a sudden I got Hollywood and my music industry coming at me, and I'm pretty green at the time, and I don't know how to respond. And so I didn't say anything until about the sixth day that this thing's gone on, and I finally fired something out, and then it went national, and then next thing I know, I was sitting in front of you on 60 Minutes. But it was like, when did, when did it not, when was it not okay to support the military wherever they are in the world? And then the biggest misconception was your question, is everything said I was a Republican, and I wasn't. So then I went independent, and I've never, I've never been a Republican, and my family is Democrat, but because I supported, I made the war cry, then I got the check mark, and so that was the absolute biggest misconception, and they abused it over and over, and I was cool with it, but they ran me out of their party. Well, then here and now, here's your chance. How do you describe yourself politically? I'm an independent, I'm in the middle, and there, there is no party for the middle. Everything you hear on the radio and TV and the internet is here or here. It's Obama or Trump. You're either lefty, lefty, or you're righty, righty. That's all you got. And if, you're, if you've got one check mark on this side or that side of the 50-yard line, you're that guy. Then where are you now? I'm in the middle. I'm somewhere between the 40s. I'm between the 40-yard lines on the football field. Now, this is not being critical, but I'm reminded of that saying that everybody's tells you the place to be is the middle of the road. But when you look down the middle of the road, all you see are yellow stripes and dead armadillos. And ditches. <laughs> There's ditches on each side, too. That's true. But I think the world is still in there between the 35-yard lines of 40. I think the whole United States is still in there. But the people who make the biggest noise are in both ditches on the side of the roads, as you say. And they don't represent what we are as a country. And I play every city, I've played every city in this United States and in Canada and go to Europe and they don't, they feel more like I do. You describe yourself as centrist, middle, between the 35, 40 yard lines. No question. That's where you are. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about gun control? You're from Oklahoma, which like Texas where I'm from is a gun culture. You know, there's a, about three or four-ish, there's about three or four topics that have gone on my whole life that are, there's probably, there's probably 20 that, you, that they've been trying to fix forever, but there's three or four that are really difficult to deal with, abortion being another one, you know? I mean, like I say, in my heart, my gut was always against abortion, but when you got a when you got a young teenage mother that's been raped, we can't make her carry and raise that baby and give it up for adoption and go through all that. That's traumatic. So that makes you on the other side look at it different in a different view, you know? So the, 
gun control and abortion and things like that are are topics that I'm not probably not smart enough to figure out the solution so I really don't gripe about it I don't like gripe about things I don't have the solution for but I think it's perfectly okay for a sane citizen that's gone through gun class to carry a concealed weapon no question you have tremendous brand loyalty how have you managed to keep that brand loyalty for so long so well honesty I'm I don't get I don't get in trouble I don't get entrapped in the uh, in the in the world of uh, right left and all that I know if if you ask me about guns I tell you if you ask me about abortion I tell you if you ask me why I played for Trump I say well nobody asked when I played the Nobel Peace Prize for Obama you know what I mean I and played, played for George W Bush played for George W Bush yeah every president that's ever asked me to perform I've played for all of them does that have to do or not with your father being a, a veteran, in fact, a wounded war veteran, the commander-in-chief yeah. calls you're going to answer. Well, I think, I think some of that's ingrained, but I think it's our duty to not be a, to divide the country. You can see division every day in the country. And that division comes from saying, hey, I ain't playing for you, Trump, or I ain't playing for you, Obama. You know what I mean? And if you just go play them all, then you disarm the idiots, because idiots are going to be idiots, and you can't help that. But there was very little that anybody could say about me playing for Trump when I showed up with Will Smith and, at the Nobel Peace Prize. And before that, I was at the White House for Bush. So if, if the next guy in invites me, I'll go. And, and as long as you stay honest and true to what you do, then you know I don't care what that other little piece says about me. My old man, sad old man. Spent his life working on the land, dirty hand and a clean soul. Breaks his heart seeing foreign cars filled with fuel at night. Wearing cotton weed and brood. When we come back, more Dan Rather with Toby Keith. It's all part of the big interview. Welcome back to Dan Rather's Big Interview with Toby Keith. Here's Dan Rather. Toby Keith has sold more than 40 million albums worldwide, but he didn't make the cover of Forbes magazine as country music's $500 million man because of music alone. From Mescal, to a chain of restaurants, to his own record label. Just about everything Toby Keith touches turns to gold. Let's talk about how you got to be a businessman. I'm interested in how this Oki, once part of, I won't call it oil field trash, we we always refer to it that way as an honor, as a matter of fact. We do too. Well, how you got to be a businessman, how you got to be a singer and a great performer is easier for most people to understand than how you got to be this entrepreneur. Once I got successful enough to get some cash, 
I never got into too many businesses that I knew nothing about. And I never got in with people I didn't trust. And I never got in with too many people that I didn't know. And the people I did get in with were people that were at least a good con man. They had to be a really good con man. But I wanted, better than how successful the deal was, I wanted to be the, the person I was going to business with, be better. You know, so forever, I don't know, 10 things you do, five of them will be mediocre, two, one or two will be successful, and two or three will fail. But the ones in my world um, that were successful were, were always uh, publicized, so you hear about them. And I mean, you could write two pages of the stuff that didn't work, <laughs> but the ones that work will outweigh the ones that don't, as long as you don't get in too deep to, you know, don't set your bait too deep under your bobber and don't hit bottom. All of them aren't going to work and you hope that um, a certain percentage are successful and you can make a lot of cash, Dan. <laughs> well, cash always brings a smile. Yeah, cash will bring a smile. Well, let's talk about your giving back. I know, I was reminded before this started and I know that it's not something you like to talk about in the sense of tooting your own horn. But you're well known in the industry and outside for philanthropy and giving back. Talk to me about that. I think it's important to anybody in any business that's successful to pick up the slack that our ignorant politicians and government don't take care of. There's a big void out there. You know, like when I went to USO tours, the first time I went for my dad. And when I came back, I said, we have to go every year for two weeks. And everybody's like, why? And I go, because no one's going. You know what I mean? There's n the USO is really struggling with the heat that people get from the media of associating yourself with troops that no one goes. Bob Hope didn't catch no shit off that. You know what I mean? Bob Hope didn't. Bob Hope was the greatest, the greatest entertainer for the troops ever. True. And the USO was really came to me and said, we're, we're having a hard time in this day and age getting people to go. I said, well, count me in for two weeks a year. And for 11 years and 200-something shows, I went Baghdad a week, or Iraq a week and Afghanistan a week. And uh, it was just, it felt like a duty. It was, was it took a lot of pride in filling that void and, and trying to, trying to champion getting other people to go and trying to shame other people into going. So you have the USO work. Mm -hmm. What else falls under the heading of philanthropic work? I noticed, for example, when a tornado hit your hometown, mm -hmm. that you were among the first people to go. Yeah, we, uh, tornado hit our hometown of Moore and and uh, University of Oklahoma came to me and said, you can have the stadium if you want to raise money for uh, for more, and I got Willie and Garth and Ronnie Dunn and Sammy Hagar and John Anderson and Mel Tillis and everybody together, and we put on a $25 concert and raised three or four million dollars for the United Way. Uh, my proudest achievement um, in that world is uh, the OK Kids Corral. Tell me about that. What is it? My first guitar player, Scott Webb, 
married a California girl and had two young children. And uh, when Allie was two, the Allison was two, she was, uh, I think it's called Wilms, Wilms disease cancer. And they thought she was going to be okay. And I had been doing a whole lot of stuff for St. Jude's. And little Allison died at two. And in her final month, I made a phone call and got her into St. Jude's in Memphis. And when Linda came back, she said, it was the most amazing thing I ever, she said, I didn't want for anything. Took care of everything I needed. It didn't cost me a nickel. And she's already strapped and already dealing with a, a, kid, a kid that's at terminal and their bills have quadrupled and she can't go to work and the husband's back, my guitar player. And I said, why don't we have this in Oklahoma City? So 15 years ago, took me about seven or eight years to, to uh, get, the, get it up and running. But we built the OK Kids Corral across the street from the OU Children's Medical Center downtown Oklahoma City, and it's a 16-room Ritz-Carlton meets Disney World. Chapel, theater room, indoor-outdoor playground. We take care of about 300 families a year, and it's directly across the street for the people that need it from the Children's Medical Center, and we call it the OK Kids Cries. It's my greatest achievement ever outside of my family. In 2015, Toby Keith was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame by his old friend Stephen Colbert. I said, girls, I ain't as good as I once was. Man, I love your pillow. That's awesome right there. <laughs> well, thank God and prayer and thank Harold Shedd and thank my family and my, my grandmother and my mom and my dad that I stand before you today and I accept this proud and this is the only award that I will show in my house right here. I've heard you say before what you're really about. You're a good singer, say the least. But where your heart is is songwriting. What are you proudest of in terms of your professional career? Being able to compete in a world where the singer-songwriter at this level has passed and compete against, um, I compare it to raising thoroughbreds. You've been to my thoroughbred farm. So if I have 100 mares, and I breed to 100 stallions, and I race my babies, I'll be very fortunate if one of them can compete at the top level. Whereas somebody who goes to Kentucky and buys a $20 million worth of athletes at the yearling sale, he'll be hard to outrun with my 100 homebreds. People who are songwriters can cherry pick the best songwriters in the world, which is in Nashville. The biggest, greatest collection of songwriters in the world, I think, is in Nashville, Tennessee. And every year they're going to be brilliant and they don't put their own songs out. So these people can come in and cherry pick these great songs. And my greatest accomplishment I'm most proud of is to get where I am today and accomplish what I've accomplished running Homebred. And I've being in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Yep. I made the Songwriter Hall of Fame because I had an artist that wanted to cut my songs, and it was me. We're not going to get modeling here, but uh, I want you to imagine your time has come. Keep in mind, I will have long since the worms have forgotten me, but your time has come. We're going to hold a memorial service. Okay. 
which of your songs do you want us to play more than any other? Woo! Well, Dan, they're all like children to me. And even though, even though some of them have put me in the Songwriter Hall of Fame, um, there's just as many, they're like children. It's like, that one's better looking, that one can jump higher, that one can dunk a basketball, that one, you know, is smarter. Um, they're, they're all still children to me, so it'd be, it would take more than this time you got an interview for me to pick the one song. The, the most important song of my whole career simply is Should Have Been a Cowboy because I watch so many people fail when they're running 200 artists a year through Nashville and you see somebody really talented and later on you find out that maybe they're a Hall of Fame writer or maybe later they get another record deal and they do better, but they missed because they moved on because they were flavor of the month. So you wouldn't be offended if we changed to Should Have Been a Cowboy if we make that the song for you. No, I wouldn't be offended at all. It's my oldest child. <laughs> Question, what's the funniest things ever happened to you on tour? Oh man, I wish you'd have hit me with this early where I could have got you a great one. Um, we play outdoors, so I've seen every nude everything. I've seen uh, every vulgar sign that you could ever uh, write about anything. I've seen uh, complete uh, rain and people standing this deep. I mean, where the amphitheater comes down and the stage is here, rain so much and, and they're like, we, we sh we'll call the show if you don't want to go out. And I go out and people are standing in this much water. So you know what they're doing in that water. And that's what I call all your fan. That's their law. Yeah. Chest uh, deep in water so to hear I, you play. I don't want the one funniest thing I ever saw in my life. I, uh, but there, life on the road is a circus. It's pretty crazy all the time. It might be crazy tonight. I know you got a circus tonight. Toby, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Dan. Man. I really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you, pal. Godspeed. Okay. Godspeed to you. Yep. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. I'll bet you never heard old Marshall Dillon say, Miss Kitty, have you ever thought of running away? Settling down, would you marry me? If I ask you twice and beg you pretty please. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.